Have you ever been to a place that touches your soul so deeply that you just can't get it out of your head? Where the history and the people that have lived there have a permanent resting place within your heart? We came across such a place, and in honor of Black History Month, we decided to talk about those individuals who have touched our hearts. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Files, I'm your host, Lachelle, and today I have with me Taylor and Marcus. Hi, guys. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> hey. <laughs> Real good. We've never been on the podcast together, so. Nope. First time. Yeah. <laughs> Dynamic so <duo>. cool. <laughs> so you two came across a really unique cemetery that... I thought was really special and was perfect for Black History Month. What can you guys tell us about it? Well, uh, we used to live in Dallas. Till, or near Dallas. Or near Dallas, not in Dallas. I'm, yeah, I guess that's true. But we would visit a lot and uh, we went to a variety of different cemeteries, actually. They're um, all right next to each other. Yeah, they're all, they're they're all like right walking next to distance. Each other. They're all in the same kind of clump of area. That's interesting. And all very different. One which you've done a previous episode on, the Greenwood Cemetery. Greenwood, yeah. yeah. It's like across the street almost, mm -hmm. maybe a block away. Yeah. Okay. Very large, very green, very very cemetery looking when people think of cemeteries. <laughs> you know, the, you know, just that stereotypical <laughs> old headstones, green grass, big trees hanging over everything. And then across the street from there, you've got two other ones. I don't think we've addressed yet in any episode. One that's... Across the street, that was for. It was like people, immigrants. For and immigrants, yeah. People of the Catholic faith, because mostly those that were buried in Greenwood were Christian. Yeah. Or like Protestants. Yeah, and then behind that, there's a, a Jewish cemetery. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And then next to that one is okay. Friedman Cemetery. Yeah. Which is a cemetery for black people, freed slaves, slash slaves. Gotcha, yeah. Well, we knew that the other two, like the Jewish cemetery and like the Catholic cemetery, we knew about those ones. And I mm -hmm. had kind of seen some info about the Freedman Cemetery, but I didn't really understand it until we walked up to it and read all the info about it. Well, I loved your pictures and I just thought that it sounded like a really special place and touched my heart. And I know that it did yours as well. Yeah, definitely. Before we dig into the cemetery there, it's important that we talk about some Black history in Dallas. In 1846, the region of East Texas was responsible for more than a quarter of the approximate 29,000 enslaved people in Texas. Dallas County had about 62 of those 29,000 enslaved. At that time, the U.S. Census then tracked the population 
and had reported that 207 enslaved people were then living in Dallas County by 1850, making up about 8% of the population. A decade later, in 1860, 1,074 enslaved people who were owned by 228 different slaveholders were there, making up 12% of the population. 97 of those enslaved people were in Dallas proper. It should be noted that at that time the population of enslaved people grew faster than that of their white counterparts. In 1864, just four years later, there were already 2,482 enslaved people. Most of these men and women lived in rural areas, working on small farms, some on plantations, with 20 others, and a small amount worked in homes. There are some instances of ads for the sale of enslaved people, but the majority came with their owners from other southern states. Slavery was never truly prominent until after the white settlers established colonies in the 1820s. And once Texas was made a republic, slavery was actually perpetuated. As in the case in a lot of other states, people of color faced harsher punishments for offenses than the white people did. An example of this happened in 1860. A large fire had erupted from several Dallas stores, burning them to the ground. People in the community then blamed some enslaved people and abolitionists. Three enslaved people were hung. Every single Dallas County slave was whipped, and all the abolitionists were run out of town. Historians believe that what most likely happened was that there was a new type of match that had exploded due to the Texas heat. I'm going to touch on Juneteenth. Awesome. Juneteenth is something that has been around for hundreds of years, obviously, but I feel like more recently, in these recent times, it's gotten more, I guess, public recognition. It has definitely become something that is uh, more widely recognized and right. more talked about. Um, it was something that certainly wasn't taught when I was in school. It wasn't taught to me in my public school. It's not something that was even you know on a calendar or anything like that that I remember from my childhood. And nowadays, it's something that is recognized and seen, and that's beautiful to see that growth. And it all started because of the ending of slavery. And I'm just going to touch on that here. And I'll start on June 19th, which is actually Juneteenth. That's why it's Juneteenth. June 19th, 1865. Union soldiers came to Galveston, Texas and put the Emancipation Proclamation into effect a whole two years after it was written. Wow. So two years after it was written, it was put into effect in Galveston. Yeah. Which is the behind on the times over there, Galveston. <laughs> yeah. This is known as Juneteenth, the day that officially ended slavery. Happiness was spread as freedom was finally reached. Subsequently, this also caused a national crisis. Black men and women had to find new lives. Most were illiterate, since there were laws against enslaved people learning how to read. Right. Some were older in years and felt scared of starting anew. This brought creating the Freedmen's Bureau, whose sole purpose was to help local governments adjust. After this time, some freed black people continued to work for those who had enslaved them, but now as sharecroppers. Unfortunately, these contracts forced people into massive amounts of debt that they would have to work to pay off. Yeah. Other freed people moved closer to Dallas city limits, escaping those farms, plantations, and homes they labored in to search for work. This is where they created freedmen towns 
in their own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. As great as, you know, slavery ending was, there was still a myriad of problems, obviously. Yeah. One being that a lot of people just ended up being sharecroppers, and basically it was still slavery, pretty much. They were hardly getting paid and getting in a bunch of debt and still having to, you know, pay that off. Right. There were several accounts that I even read that just talked about how when they were told in the fields that slavery ended, everyone was like happy and excited. And as they ran to their homes, the happiness slowly subsided to that of, well, what now? (laughs) What do we do now? Yeah, exactly. Where do we go? What do we do? This has been our lives since we were born. What else is there? It'd be a tough adjustment for sure. They weren't allowed to have anything of their own, no place of their own, no things of their own. Now what? Exactly. And also, I mean, there comes then the culture and black people were often cautious of their white neighbors, which, of course, from their past experience of being enslaved and treated very poorly to also um, the violence that happened after emancipation. A man named William H. Horton, he was an agent of the Freedmen's Bureau that Marcus was talking about. He came to Dallas County to compile a list of offenses made by white people against black people that had either ended in severe injury or death. Mm -hmm. And he found lots of evidence of lynchings, beatings, whippings, and a very tragic account of a woman being dragged on the bottom of the Trinity River. (gasps) And these occurred quite often during the period of what's called Reconstruction, which is after Juneteenth and... All those years that it took until people were finally like, okay, this is a thing. You know, our slaves are freed now. The whole South went through, you know, the reconstruction because after the Civil War, then they were forced back into the Union and everything was, you know, had been destroyed. And it was, it was a mess. Yeah. So in one spring season, Horton found that there were as many as 13 murders during that one season. So who knows if there's, there's probably countless of others, of course, but just in one spring, there was 13 in Dallas County. Oh, it's just awful. You know, was he able to get any recourse? Those 13 murders definitely went to a jury and they were tried. Uh And I don't know if they actually were sentenced, but I do know that there were trials. Okay. Well, and that was like his whole job was to like find what happened to these people and bring them justice. Right. Basically, because there was no such thing before. Yeah. Well, it would be really interesting if we could find out more about that too, huh? Because that's... I'm glad at least, though, someone was trying. The Freedmen's Bureau, it's only touched on a little bit because they were really underfunded. Mm-hmm. They didn't have as much money as some of these other bureaus do to make sure that people were doing okay and they were getting, you know, accepted into society and all of that. Right. And they probably didn't get a ton of cooperation from everyone. No. (laughs) Yeah, probably not well-funded by the government. No, it definitely was not. Well, and especially after the government just went through the Civil War. Yeah. And they probably didn't have a whole lot of money either. Yeah. It was a great time. Like, it's so great that finally, you know, it was happening and freedom was happening. And then it was like, 
they needed this bureau to be really amazing and really help them get jobs and get established. And yeah, this brings us to Friedman's Cemetery. And the settlement itself was known as Friedman Town, and it was located in North Dallas, not on the Devil's Back Porch. No, <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> about. Two miles from downtown Dallas, in 1869, William Bowles, a white landowner, had started to sell land to newly freed people. Among those was a man named Sam Eakins, whose intent was to establish a freedman's cemetery, where a cemetery of slaves had previously been established. This alone shows that they wanted to make this particular land their permanent home. In the same year, Bowles sold more land, one acre at a time, to a large number of freedmen. Freed people came from all over to live in this community, and in the first year alone, already 500 people had come to live in this space. This is just one of many freedmen's towns that were spread throughout Dallas. So freedmen's towns were just the general term for them? There was a lot in Dallas. Mm -hmm. There was one called like Little Egypt. There was another one called like White Rock or something like that. Okay. These were places that had hope and growth, safety, Mm -hmm. and no racism. In the face of segregation, freedmen would build their own shops. Black doctors, dentists, grocers, and movie theaters opened up to serve those people in Freedman Town. In history, there's a lot of things like this. Like Black Wall Street, for example, or Tulsa and the fires and the things that happened there that destroyed the black town that was growing and thriving there. Oh, wow. But that's what these Friedman towns were about. We're just embracing these people in their lives and them being able to start a life and, and live kind of in, in peace and they're with their own community and yeah. people around them who look like them. and Especially because they had never had that before. Exactly. This is like a whole Mm -hmm. new thing for them. It was like they had started completely over, Mm -hmm. but they were all able to band together because they all were going through the same thing and do it together. Exactly. It makes total sense. Like, why would they choose to live any other way? Yeah. But uh, a cemetery was established there, of course, because... Every town needs a cemetery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, every town needs a cemetery. Uh, where many loved ones would be interred, making it grow to be larger than four acres of land. Yeah, so it was already there. Yeah, it was already It was a cemetery for slaves, and when Sam Eakins bought it, he just kept growing on it, because mm-hmm. obviously people die. Yep. So. Yeah, and probably some of their own people, like their own yeah. parents yeah. and grandparents and those that had gone before, and they wanted to be buried there as well. People could reside here without the fear of being discriminated against, but also lived close enough to downtown to be able to find employment. Within a few years, Friedman Town was a city within a city, like Taylor was saying. They just become their own cities inside of an already established, thriving city, but a city where they could do their thing. They could trade and go to their own doctor and people that they trusted to deal with them fairly. They wouldn't be served in a regular city's communities. Segregation was a big thing, and so... You know, like white restaurants and white clothing stores and they needed their own place to be able to go. But they still lived close enough to where they could just go and find a job somewhere else if they Mm -hmm. needed to. So it wasn't like they were far away from everybody. They just still just had their own community, though. Yeah. So in the beginning, many people would gather together in their homes to worship. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But by 1878, seven churches had been built. Love it. Because there was such a popular demand that they just kept building churches. And so these buildings actually lasted well into the late 1900s. Mm-hmm. They are now like different buildings. I don't think they're all churches anymore. Or there might be different names for churches. But there's still mm-hmm. some that are around. In 1876, Texas legislator mandated that schools were to be racially segregated, as we know. But, of course, there was very little funds for black schools. And so the churches in Freedmantown actually decided to fill that void with classes for all ages. So there's a couple of very notable reverends that took this upon themselves. One was Reverend Henry Swan actually taught classes in a day school run out of his church. And then Reverend Alan R. Griggs ran a grammar school out of his church. Nice. Which included reading, arithmetic, geography, writing, singing, and Bible studies. And then a couple years later, Reverend Griggs then found that it would probably be prudent to add higher grade levels. And so with the help of other Baptist congregations, he was actually able to establish a high school, which had enrollment of 165 students. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's so cool that the community was like, well, we're not getting any help here, so we'll just do it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> Who knows how to read? Who knows how to, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. We gotta teach the kids. They're gonna have better than what we got. Although opportunities were limited to Black residents, they held a variety of jobs, including teamsters, laborers, draymen, carpenters, barbers, expressmen, Preachers, servants, blacksmiths, farmers, woodsars, porters, brickmakers, plasterers, engineers, and laundresses. All the things that a community needed to run in those days. Yeah. They needed all of those things. And like you said, they could still go into Dallas and all of those jobs still needed to be done there. A member of the Freedman community, a man named Doc Rowan, owned a grocery store, as well as a loan, real estate, and title business. He sold wood and coal and was also a stockholder for the state fair in Dallas. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, a lot. That happened a lot, though, in those days. They would have, like, five jobs. Yeah, they're just got all kinds of things going on. I get that. Between the 1870s and the 1880s, the Dallas population more than tripled, which prompted the creation of new wards. So in 1889, Freedman Town became a part of Ward 9, and it's likely that at this time, Freedman Town was known as North Dallas. This area was primarily black, although some white households and businesses were scattered throughout. By the 1900s, North Dallas was well-established, and for the next 40 years, it grew into a thriving community. Segregation and Jim Crow law provided Black people with very few neighborhoods to live in. Because of this, North Dallas was a desirable place to live for Black people. Now we're going to get into some notable Black people who lived in the area during this time, just like Doc Rowan. During these early 1900s, one of them was William Elisha King, who had founded a weekly newspaper in 1892. 
In it, he brought attention to African-American life in Dallas. The newspaper would later be known as the Dallas Express. It covered black news at all local, state, and national levels. That is really cool. Yeah, it is really cool that uh, just like you got to have buildings and jobs, you got to get news too. You got to start right. your own newspaper. I would love to read some of those articles. Yeah, um, if only they could be found, maybe They some probably archives. are in yeah. some archives. You got to get all the news that uh, maybe the regular newspapers aren't sharing. Well, it would, it would probably have to deal with things of race yeah. and racism and prejudice and things that would happen to these people that white newspapers would We're not cover. focus on. The injustices that are going on. Yeah, time, exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. But That's also, exactly what it was just going to have regular news as well. I mean. Well, yes, still regular news. So, yeah. But it was primarily black news. Yeah. So it was things that black people needed to know. Benjamin Blewett received his license to operate a sanitarium. Ollie Louise Bryant was the first woman to graduate dentistry at Mihari Medical College in Tennessee. She then moved to North Dallas in 1906 and maintained her practice for the next decade. Love it. Marcellus C. Cooper, also a graduate of Mihari Medical College in dentistry, returned to North Dallas. He was a successful dentist, but he also invested in the first black-owned bank known as the Penny Savings Bank established in 1907. In 1923, William R. McMillan opened the McMillan Sanitarium, which grew a reputation for having quality care. One of its doctors was Lee G. Pinkston, a renowned surgeon who established one of the first black-only clinics. Yeah, there was only three in Freedman Town, and his was one of the most successful. Wow, he was busy. He was a busy doctor. He was yeah. a very busy doctor. <laughs> so these people are working, they're thriving, they're growing, they're they're making a way for themselves. We think of sanitarium and you think of kind of like where they put crazy people, but back then it just kind of meant like a hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. But just the drive that they have to just make this happen, make this work for their town. I just love the stories so much and just like, all right. What do we want to do for the first time? Like, yeah. we can do it. You know, we can make things happen. We can be what we want to be. And that's so inspiring. You know, they could have just been like, ah, oh, we don't know what we're doing. But yeah. they just like, no, we have worked our butts off all our lives yeah. without any pay, being mistreated. And now we get a chance to do what we want and we're going to do it right. Exactly. And they had that strength from everything that they had to endure. And now they were going to make a difference for each other in their community. One of the most renowned residents was an architect named William Sidney Pittman. Pittman married Portia, who was the daughter of Booker T. Washington. Oh, okay. Then moved to North Dallas by 1913. He designed the St. James AME Church on Good Street and the Knights of Pythias building on the same street. That's cool. They both have been designated as City of Dallas Landmarks. So they all have plaques on the outside. Interesting. So it's part of like the historical society and this black man was the see, one that designed them. Why didn't we see those buildings when we were there? I, we didn't know about those we buildings, buildings when we were there. there. I'm, wow. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> I run into that all the time. You go to a place and you really think you've seen everything and there's just so much history in all our cities and especially the older cities. So next time. So in the 1930s, North Dallas was the heart and soul of Dallas's black population. And so places like 
the African American YMCA, or the YWCA, as it was called then, hmm. was constructed in 1931. Also, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, as we know, mm-hmm. held meetings in that community. Also at that time, the Dunbar Public Library opened as the first Black-only library in the city. All this advancement did obviously not come without its challenges. Residents faced adversity, Mm -hmm. of course, and prejudice, racism, violence. Restrictive boundaries discouraged geographical expansion, so they, they were stuck in just that one area that they had built up from when they were all freed. But they needed paved streets, and they needed sewer lines, and they needed these things that would help them reduce those health risks. Mm-hmm. In the 1940s, there was a drastic decline of North Dallas. In 1946, the State Department announced that the city's first freeway was going to be built, known as Highway 75, or the Central Expressway. In a short amount of time, the east and west sides of what used to be Freedmantown were cut off from each other by a dangerous, impassable barrier. Can you believe that? Just, we're going to put it right through your town. Yeah. Not only did this cut their community in half, but 1,500, 1,500 houses and shops in that area were demolished to make room for the highway. Most of them were owned or occupied by the descendants of those who established Freedmantown. And the highway was also built over a large portion of the cemetery, destroying markers and encasing those buried below under the concrete. The Dallas Morning News reported, quote, It is hoped that no unwarranted delay in the removal of tenants and city-owned houses will upset the schedule in beginning this work, end quote. Ugh. Yeah, it feels icky. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's no icky, good. all right. Especially because they just didn't care. They were just like, oh, you mean 1,500 houses and shops are right here? Yeah. Nah, we don't care. No, Let's, we need this. You guys get out of here. We need this freeway. We need right this freeway here. more than you need a house to live in. Yeah. Ugh. In the 40s, too? How many people are driving that much? Yeah, exactly. They're like, hmm, let's see. We don't want it to upset any of our other neighborhoods in Dallas. And hmm. That's exactly what it is. We don't care about this neighborhood. We'll just put it right down the middle, cover up their cemetery. What happened to those people? I don't know. They were homeless. They were just evicted. And then their house was torn down. That's pretty much what happened. And unfortunately, this happened in Texas a lot. Like I read about it. And this happened not only like removing people from their houses and building a highway, But also, it was known throughout Texas that they would build over black cemeteries a lot. Like, this is not the first one that this has ever happened. They would do this over and over and over again. It's awful. Right. And I have heard of that in other cities in the South as well. I mean, at some point, they had to start giving people at least money for their homes and land. So I hope something happened with this. I couldn't find anything about it. Not in the 40s. Racism was still very much alive. It's still alive today, but it was very prominent then. Definitely. The road was completed in 1949, but then the Roseland Homes Project was beginning construction. There was a court battle, 
where a large number of black and some white property owners filed an injunction against the Dallas Housing Authority in 1939. Unfortunately, the owners lost and 142 houses were purchased and then demolished to make room for new housing, displacing hundreds of families who didn't have the ability to find housing in white neighborhoods. Yeah, because of Jim Crow laws. (laughs) Being a black homeowner is difficult, especially in that time and still carries on even today to where there's examples of people getting charged more than what the housing price is because it's a black family to things like that. Or just randomly getting, you know, evicted and then your house getting torn down and then made into like a really nice neighborhood that you can't afford or aren't allowed to live in because you're black. Or banks just not approving loans for black homeowners. Right. That's more like today's. I'm just saying it carries issues. over. Into yeah, it's day. still yeah. it still is a problem today. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, it started there with things like that where they just kick people out of their. They homes. just kick people out and, just and destroy they, them, and and there might still be a degree of that going on, you know, in small towns and mm-hmm. various places. We have no idea. We don't have the Dallas Express news to let us know these things <laughs> that are going on. We need that Dallas Express news to give us the info. We do need that Dallas Express news. You know, that is where the story is. So we're going to have to see if we can find some of that. So in 1965, the other remaining portion of the cemetery that didn't get disrupted and paved over for this, it was agreed that it would be called Friedman's Memorial Park. And it just was unkept and quite frankly forgotten yeah basically said it was just like a homeless person's playground because they were like oh because this happened we'll make this uh yeah, a memorial park and they put it. like a they put a fence around it and they put a little playground in there yeah. and it was dumpy and mm, underkept and then kind of it just kind of went downhill and yeah. was like unkept and then it's like pioneer park Oh, gosh. Down in Mesa. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I used to play there when I was a little kid, but now I know it's not so great. Yeah. Pioneer Park is uh, (laughs) not so great. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Eventually, traffic congestion became a problem for their big fancy highway. And in 1987, the state highway agency announced that it intended to expand the highway. So, of course, traffic's a problem. Let's make it bigger. We got to increase this thing. So many people traveling through here. We can see where uh, this is going here. Yeah. The agency hired an archaeologist who did a survey of the neighborhood and noticed a sign for the Freedman's Memorial Park. So this archaeologist was the first person to actually notice the sign probably and realize, hey, there's something here. Maybe we got to check on that. Yeah. All work of the highway expansion stopped and the archaeologist started digging. Ooh, I like it. They found one body, kept digging. They found 30. Then they kept digging some more. They found 1,157 bodies. Wow. The team decided that the original expressway had paved over a fourth of the cemetery that at one point held 7,000 enslaved and freedmen. Oh, wow. 7,000 souls just buried under concrete. Yeah. Basically, they found 1,000. They were like, okay. Yeah. Obviously, this was a problem. Yeah. going on here, yeah. And they did keep digging still it wasn't like they stopped at 1000 were like okay we know yeah. there's bodies under there they did keep digging until they found like every single yeah. body that wow. they could yeah 
what an experience for that archaeologist. I mean, uh, I know. If I dug and saw a body, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> well, that's what their that job movie. is. That is, is what they're like, he's used out. to. He, that's it's kind of what he does. That makes them happy. They're like, ooh, bones. Yeah, honestly, the only reason an archaeologist was even there was because descendants of the people that made Freedman Town stepped in. Yeah, they made said. a petition that said, y'all need to come out here. Wait a minute. And get an archaeologist out here and do a study because I'm pretty sure this was a cemetery at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, somebody listened and and an archaeologist wow. found what obviously was Yeah. So in 1993, the Texas Department of Transportation exhumed the remains from under the road and reinterred oh. them at the park alongside the other thousands of unmarked graves. That's awesome. So, yeah. took all those bodies and put them in the park. Or at least we think we, they got them all. Right. I mean. They did their best, it sounded like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did their best. There were several markers where it said, one said that at one point, 5,000 were interred all at the same time, basically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then another said, like, a 1,000 or so were interred. And then I saw one oh. where it just had one person. Right. Yeah. Was interred. So it's like they did a little more construction or something and found another body and were like, oh, well, that's where they belong. That gives you hope in humanity. Yeah. So yeah. they still expanded the highway, but they did move the bodies that they found. At least they moved the them and weren't like, oh, oh, well. Yeah. They could have been like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Which they already did the first time, but. Yes, they did. <laughs> but we, they have tried to right their yeah. wrongs, I guess. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we should. This is another generation. Yeah. That's what we should hail them for, is that they tried to right the wrongs of the people that had done this to them before. There is no try. Yeah. Only do. <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Star Wars fans. I've probably offended a lot of people. Sorry, Garen. <laughs> sorry, Garen. <laughs> He's going to be so disappointed <laughs> in you. <laughs> so after they were reinterred, the community worked with the city of Dallas to return Freedman Cemetery to its original state before the expressway was built. And a black sculptor named David Newton was commissioned to build a memorial honoring those graves that had been desecrated. Mm-hmm. Newton wanted the memorial to show the history of black people, starting at freedom in Africa to slavery and then to emancipation in his sculptures. And it's very clear that he has done that in very the sculptures. So. Mm-hmm. He wanted the memorial to be a collective headstone for the thousands of people that had been uprooted because of the highway construction. Right. And when one looks at it from a bird's eye view, it's actually in the shape of a cross. Oh. So he gave them one giant headstone, which is beautiful. It is so beautiful. I did not realize that. Yeah, I didn't either until I was doing the research. And then I was like, oh, that's so cool. But now that you think about it, it's totally in the shape of a cross. After the memorial was finished, it was dedicated in 1999. There were only two headstones that were excavated intact from the rubble under the road. Oh, wow. I couldn't find any info on the other, but one was of Emma McCune, and her headstone is actually at some point, I don't know if it is, we didn't see it, no, but we, it we said didn't see it. at one point that it was actually in the park, in the park. Like you could go and look at it, but we looked at all the stones and we didn't see any. She was born enslaved 
on June 19th, 1855. Mm. She died of breast cancer 48 years later on May 5th, 1903 as a free woman. But her headstone, it's pink marble and it has the inscription, gone from our homes, but not from our hearts. Aww. Which is sweet. When you first walk up, there is a large marble arch with two figures on the outside. The first is called the Sentinel and has the description of a symbolic guardian protecting the site from disrespect or harm. His attire is based on Benin culture of West Africa. It's this big, strong looking, like look like a football player. This <laughs> beefy yeah. man, big sword. It looks like somebody would be standing outside of Wakanda, which isn't real, but... <laughs> He looks like an I African warrior. An African warrior. Yeah, he was he, amazing. It was amazing to see. He just exudes I could see, power. Yeah, and, and his purpose is to you know detract, disrespect, or harm. And you wouldn't want to go in there and disrespect or harm that place when you see that statue there, because yeah. you almost feel like he would come to life and take care of you. <laughs> just, it is that lifelike. Stand, though. It is very lifelike. Yeah, very realistic. And yeah handsome man mm-hmm. and solid mm-hmm. yeah and the second one is the prophetess her description says symbolic of an african oral historian keeping the knowledge and memory of her ancestors alive mm. she's a woman with a harp love it so she's got kind of like an athena kind of vibe would you mm-hmm. say yeah just like yeah she's got like a headdress mm. on and yeah she's got yeah. kind of like a harp I, i'm it, I don't know if it's really a harp, but it kind of looks like, like a harp like it's like a harp like instrument. Yeah. But she's wearing the traditional, yeah, the traditional she's African the, garb. Mm-hmm. She's more like just looks wise. Yeah. You've got mm-hmm. wisdom on one side and power and strength on the other side. Yeah. Oh, I like it. And they're just guarding the entrance into the into the Freedman Cemetery mm-hmm. memorial. And it's beautiful. Hopefully these will be on the blog. They will be on the blog. So listeners, mm-hmm. definitely check out the blog. We'll be sharing all of these. And then when you walk through the arch, which has two iron gate doors, on the inside of the arch, there are two sculptures. One is called the Violated Soul, which is of a woman who is chained and holding her head in her hand. The plaque says, symbolic of the violation of African women and the degrading nature of slavery. Covered faces represents the loss of personal identity experienced by enslaved persons. That is just heartrending. The it really is. The photos they bring so much emotion. Yeah, mm-hmm. they bring your emotions out, and you can feel what they are intended to be, which says a lot for the sculptor himself. Very talented. They just look so lifelike too. That's part of the reason why it's so mm-hmm. like powerful. Yeah, it's so gripping because they look like real people, yeah. and they're telling real yeah. stories and which these people mm-hmm. were real people yeah with real stories yeah. yes i mean the just terrible things that would happen to enslaved women i mean oh yeah even though white men you know had them enslaved and didn't like black people and all these other things but they would take advantage of these women very yeah, they, often they would still rape them and yeah yeah they did yeah and they didn't have a choice whether to be with the person that owned them, they had to and bore them many children. Yeah. yeah. And if they refused, they would just 
be beaten or killed. Yeah. Yeah, they, they couldn't refuse. Yeah. So just like the sculptor had said, he's telling a story here first. It's African strength and mm-hmm. how they were in, in their homeland. Mm-hmm. And then it continues. You walk into the gates and then you have, you know, the violated soul sculpture of the woman who was enslaved. And This is where they started. This is who they were outside of these gates. You go through the gates and then this is what they went through. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This is who they were forced into being. Yes. And on the other side, there is a sculpture called the struggling soul. So the violated soul is the woman. The struggling soul is the man. Mm. And this is of a man chained with his arms covering his face. Once again, his face is covered. He's mm-hmm. lost his personal identity. Yeah. The plaque reads, symbolic of the enslaved Africans' resistance to slavery and their constant struggle for freedom. The watery background represents the Atlantic Middle Passage, unique to the American slave trade. Mm. So for those who look at the blog and see the picture, you can see he's wrenched in a way where he looks like he's struggling and try to get out of those chains and Mm -hmm. just bust out of there. And that's what the symbolic nature of the sculpture is, is the resistance to slavery and the Atlantic Middle Passage to where a lot of lives were lost because a lot of people would just jump off the ships as opposed to getting all the way to where their destination was and becoming slaves, so. Yeah, and the conditions are just awful. Yeah, and the ships itself was a whole other... Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different podcast, unfortunately. I don't know if my heart could take it. But yeah, we'll just leave it at that for now, that everyone knows. Exactly. Yeah, it's just the worst horror that a person who lived free and then was captured and made to endure... As you venture downward through the pathway, two figures holding each other sit in the middle. This is the biggest sculpture of them all. Um, all the other ones are carved into the, the arches or the walls or put in there, but this one is a big centerpiece right in the middle. And personally, my favorite. I like this one a lot. A man sits on a stump holding a woman who is on one knee next to him. It's called a dream of freedom. The description says, symbolic of a newly emancipated couple contemplating the death of suffering of their ancestors so it's that bittersweet nature that we talked about a little bit earlier about the emancipation you know they're happy to be emancipated but now they're thinking of all of them who came before them who didn't get to enjoy this newfound freedom even though it wasn't a great freedom for a while it was still something that they were fighting for for a long time or thinking about for a long time right it was the start it's a start exactly and it's a beautiful sculpture once again, two very realistic figures. Just beautiful. So beautiful. People often put flowers in between the arms of mm-hmm. um, the woman. The woman yeah. And the backside of the man sculpture is scarred and torn just from all the whippings he had endured. Oh, his back. It's a powerful It's a powerful piece. thing to see. Yeah. Just to see that. It's a beautiful representation of just their feelings of Mm -hmm. here we are, we're free, but look at what it costs to get here. And And it's almost like the man is comforting the woman, that he's like holding her and comforting her through all that they've been through together. But at the same time, his head is down and he's also, yes, exactly. They're there for each other. It's love. At the end of the day, beautiful yeah. love between two people. 
even in a difficult time. Oh, I love that. And then as you look to your left, there's just an empty grassy plot. No headstones. Mm -hmm. There's just some small plaques and that's pretty much it. Designating where, as they Mm -hmm. found more, where they were interred. Then along the arch wall, there's poems all the way around. And they're all written by black poets. Mm -hmm. They're all very beautiful. Just uh, walking in there and seeing all those beautiful statues and following the story. First seeing the sentinel on the outside and seeing his power and his strength and seeing that and being just really, just really touched and, and inspired in a way like I came from that. Yeah. That's a strong These are my that, ancestors. Yeah, that's my ancestor right there. And they looked like him mm-hmm. and I kind of look like him. Yeah. He's a powerful being. And, you know, I can be a powerful being as well, just like him. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't get a lot of uh, strong yeah, black, black visuals like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's good right. to see that, you know, we see a lot of Hercules and things like that. But it was good to see this African warrior representation up there and, uh, and then to see the wisdom on the other side. And the of also in. a very powerful black woman. A very powerful black which woman. Which you like yeah. never see. Yeah. The combination of knowledge and power. How good it was to see him. And I love, too, that they put the man and the woman in all of those mm-hmm. yeah. different parts, right? You know, it's kind of the each, the side, you know, of two people. and Exactly. And working together and having the different trials and different, you know, hurts and strengths. And, and that's exactly how the story is. Like, behind the sentinel is the struggling soul Mm -hmm. so he goes from sentinel to the struggling soul just like the prophetess the violated soul is behind her so it goes from prophetess to violated soul and then in the middle they meet and they become the dream of freedom which is the couple that's in the middle to see that sculpture i stood there for a while and looked at that one i looked at that one the most i had a lot of reverence when i was looking at that one because that one was closer to not necessarily my time, but, but that's my great-great-grandparents pretty much. Great-great-great-grandparents. Mm-hmm. It's farther than great-great. Mm-hmm. But it was just, since it was closer to a present day time, it just felt even more real. And it was, even though it was a very emotional picture, emotional sculpture, I felt a sense of reverence and a sense of seeing that all together and seeing them at the end holding each other. And I just thought, my people are strong. They've gone through a lot. Right. And they persevered and got through it. And they made it through it. And I'm here because of that, because of what they went through and keeping their hope, not giving up and seeing those two. It was like seeing two ancestors up there and just being grateful for them, just having a lot of gratitude and a lot of pride for the strength that they showed. Do you want to talk about where your people had come from? Yeah, I do actually have a lot of family that come from... I have some people that come from Texas. Uh, According to my DNA map, I think Louisiana is kind of where it all sprung from. But I'm just going off my... Your DNA. My DNA. Mm -hmm. Ancestry.com DNA swab that Randy gave me. Thank you, Randy. Shout out to Randy. (laughs) Shout out to Ancestry. We're giving you a plug, Ancestry. (laughs) Yeah, Ancestry. Go ahead and sponsor. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But yeah. My ancestry DNA map. I think the two places it started was Virginia, which is strange. And no, because that's where 
the biggest slave trade. Oh, really? Was, Virginia? Okay. Was in Virginia. Okay. Well, yeah, it kind of spawned in Virginia and then Louisiana. Another big hot spot, and then it kind of spreads from there. It goes from Louisiana to Texas, to Oklahoma, yeah. To, and then, but you were able to go look back, clear into the west coast of Africa, right? Oh well, yeah, that's originally where my DNA is from. I'm a thirty-five percent Nigerian, according to my DNA, mm-hmm. and then twenty-five percent Cameroon, Congo, West Bantu region. Yeah, my DNA story over time leads into. Louisiana, like I was saying. I think DNA for anyone is just really interesting and where we come from and people's stories, of course, thus the podcast. Like, (laughs) I just, you know, every single person, like, has such an amazing history and story and each person comes from so many other people and their choices and their lives and, and their stories and it all, you know, collects to make another person and I think it's really interesting well I appreciate you sharing you know your feelings and your thoughts being there and that just it's really touching to me and just had a lump in my throat as well because yeah yeah it was a beautiful experience emotional experience but overall I felt reverence pride yeah I guess the saddest part is just the unmarkedness of it all i even in regular cemeteries, I don't like walking on people's graves. Yeah. I don't know. I feel weird about it. And so just, I guess, walking around on the lawn, right. knowing that there's a bunch of people down there, unmarked and unknown. I'm, that was just the hardest part, I guess, was, but the statues and everything right. only brought good, good feelings. Yeah. When we walked in, we actually kind of went our separate ways. Yeah. We each looked at different really things and read different poems on our own and then we both kind of looked at each other and then I of course like started bawling and you had tears in your eyes and we both just you could feel it you could feel it for sure it was very powerful well I mean that many souls in one spot yeah you're gonna feel it true you're gonna feel it and knowing how many of them like what they went through that yeah a lot of yeah a lot of that energy of just yeah and also the sadness of knowing that they had just been like covered up and uncared for and then rediscovered was was hard to take into yeah they had stories that needed to be told and we're telling them yeah yeah we are that's what this is about right here (laughs) yeah i love that you know there's cemeteries all across the country that are dealing with similar things that towns want to get rid of it you know they want to do something different because i want to use that space we gotta bury our dead somewhere people <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah i'm sure it happens all the time. i love hearing when people of a town or a city fight for that for that to be kept a sacred space and yeah kept a cemetery and i think it's important for us and we've talked about it before but people tending to want to get away from remembering the dead or dealing with death and with the dead and I I think it's important that we don't do that. Yeah. No, we cannot forget those who came before us. Exactly. The Library of Congress did an amazing set of interviews called the Federal Writers Project Slave Narrative Project which was assembled in the years 1936 through 38 
interviewers went around the country to find those that had previously been enslaved and were asked to tell their stories, which I love. I know, it was so amazing. A lot of these people were like really old and were just like super honest about it. And it was fun reading all of these interviews. That's really awesome. I'm going to go back and read some more of those. Here are three notable stories of some freed people in Dallas, Texas. First, we have Mose Hersey. At the time of his interview was 82 years of age. He was born in Louisiana and his family was sold to Jim Bulling when he was a child. They were moved to Red River County, Texas. Jim Bowling had only bought Moses' parents and himself, leaving behind two older siblings. These are the parts that just tear me apart, where families and couples and children were just taken from their mother after being born. I just, oh, I just can't handle it. But while they were there, his parents had two more children. He was small when he remembered seeing covered wagons roll in, saying that there was a war. The day slavery ended, his father told him, we'll be searching for a place to stay and work on a payway. As he left the plantation with his family, he recalled that Jim Bowling stopped him and gave him a cup of sweet coffee. Moe said, he thought considerable plenty of me. His family then worked as farmers, where his father told him he was going to learn how to be a man. He said that this was when times were hard. Money was scarce, and our feeding was poor. Soon after, his father died, leaving his mother with five children. They then moved again to a town called Sherman, where his mother would do the washing and ironing. Mose then attended school for only a week where the teacher told him that he had a great mind for it. Unfortunately, Mose was taken out of school in order to help his mother with the kids while she had to work. His desire for learning never waned. So with the help of some friends, learned how to read and write. As Mose grew up, he would take different kinds of odd and end jobs, but his mother told him that he was different than the other children. He was serious. At the age of 15, Mose Hersey was baptized, and then by 25, he said, I had a clear call to preach the gospel word. He then married and had several children, and he would farm on the weekdays and preach on the weekends. His life carried on like that until he was about 30 years old. He says about that time, that's when God started making a prophet out of me. Today, I am Mose Hersey head prophet to the world. Mose Hersey died on the 5th of September, 1941. Another woman was named Lulu Wilson, was 97 when she did her interview. When they had questioned her, she was actually blind and bedridden. But when it came time to take her picture, she put on a fur coat and she decided to stand outside. <laughs> Swag never stops. <laughs> Swag never stops. She's like, uh-uh, you're taking a picture of me. I'm putting on this yeah. fur coat and I'm standing outside. I may be 97 and bedridden, but I'm going to look cute. We got to look fly. We always got to look <laughs> that fly. That is right. You know. I'm with I you, have Lulu. the pictures that went with the 
Library of Congress's interviews, and her picture is hilarious. I love it so much. She's got her little fur coat on, and she looks great. So her first words in the interview were, quote, course I was born in slavery. I'm an old-time slavery woman, and the way I've been through the hackles, I got plenty to say about slavery. Lulu Wilson says, there ain't no good in it, and they better not bring it back. Mm-mm, don't do it. <laughs> That's right. She was a no. sassy lady. <laughs> oh, love it. And they better not bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> but Lulu and her family belonged to a man named Wash Hodges, and they lived in Kentucky at the time. Lulu's father was actually what she says is a full-blood Greek Indian, and... Because of this, he was free, but the Hodges actually allowed him to stay because he got Lulu's mom pregnant and they were like, oh, more children. Oh, yay. More people that we can use. Mm -hmm. But as time passed, no more children came about and they decided that he was too old. So they actually got their dogs to like chase him off the property and he ended up running to a free state and stayed there the rest of his life. Then after that happened, Lulu's mother was actually forced to mate with the only other enslaved man that was there. And they ended up having 19 children. Oh, that woman. Oh my word. Yeah. So she gave birth 20 times at least. Yes. Lulu describes it as like one after the other, like just baby after baby after baby. Like that was part of her mom's job was just to have kids. Yeah. Well, that man got 19 more slaves off of this. Poor yeah, woman. exactly. Oh. And it actually says that while her mom would be working in the kitchen or in the fields, she would come back home to her baby and she would find that her child would have been stolen and actually sold off to some other oh. uh, slaveholder. Oh. She would like fall down to the ground and just like cry her eyes out. I can't handle it. I know. <laughs> but as soon as Lulu was old enough, she was removed from her mother's house and actually forced to sleep at the foot of Mrs. Hodge's bed. And she wasn't exactly like the nicest lady around, of course. But Mr. Hodge also wasn't the best manager of his property and he would actually lose lots of his money. And so because of that, he just decided that he didn't want to feed those that he had enslaved. Oh. She said that they hardly ate anything. Then, of course, they're supposed to work with no food. Yeah. So Lulu said that they hardly ate anything, but that Lulu's mother was a spitfire. (sighs) It said that at one point, Hodges tried to whip her and Lulu's mom knocked him in the face and made him bleed. And so then when he tried to get some neighbors to whip her for him, Lulu actually overheard Mr. Hodges tell his wife, quote, they said, I don't want to come over there and have Chloe Ann beat me up, (laughs) which was Lulu's mom. (laughs) They're like, I don't think so. They were scared of her. (laughs) Wow, she was brave. And at another point... Her mother was actually sold two times and she would run away and she'd be chased by dogs. And one of the times she actually just took a club and just beat the dog with it. And the dog ran away. That's right. But each time. Oh, my gosh. She was sold. They'd always bring her back to the Hodges because she was just too much for them. So you go, Chloe Ann. (laughs) Mrs. Hodges 
used to actually beat Lulu on a regular basis. She would tie her hands behind her back, lay her on the ground, and rub snuff into her eyes. I don't know what snuff is. Is that tobacco? Oh, no. Yeah, that's like they would sniff it up their nose. Yeah. So she would rub snuff into Lulu's eyes. Why? Because she was mean. (laughs) There's no reason why, just because she could, I, I guess. know, I know. I don't know why I said why. I know, I get why. It doesn't make any why. sense I know. why you would want to blind. Yeah. And Lulu was sure that that is how she eventually became blind, was because of that, which makes sense. Yeah. When she was 13, Lulu was actually made to marry another enslaved man and then told to immediately have children at 13 years old. And she did. And they actually moved quite a bit after this because Hodges had joined the confederacy they lost the first battle that he was in and he decided to turn tail and run so he was a deserter real brave man actually soldiers came to come and get him and like dragged him back to the war and he was gone for four years (laughs) i mean yeah (laughs) yeah when emancipation came the family actually saw soldiers who told them that slavery was over but they were told that if they were grown, they could leave, but that the children had to stay until they were of age, which is kind of crazy. So they all stayed because they all had children that were not of age. So they couldn't leave and take their children. They had. Yeah. That makes no sense. Somebody was told wrong. Lulu's stepfather, the man that her mom was forced to mate with, he actually ended up, after emancipation, traveling all across the state to find all of the children that the Hodges had sold off and he brought some back with him. He was able to find some and bring them back home with them. And at some point, a group of Ku Klux Klan members came to bother them and Lulu says that her mother whooped each and every one. Oh, good. (laughs) You do not mess with that lady. (laughs) (laughs) She was a force. I love her so much. She had 20 babies. She worked all the time, had them taken away from her. It was forced to mate with someone she was rock solid she didn't take no crap from anybody (laughs) she says that she doesn't remember the passing of time after that but eventually she left the hodges and then she worked as a nurse for 50 years oh wow during that time her son actually did die but he had provided her with a grandson who ended up being the light of her life and i couldn't find any info about how she died or when she died but she was awesome. When did she become blind? Do we know? Um, Just later on in her, as she got older, probably after she was a nurse, as she got old. Yeah. No way you could be a blind wow. nurse. Yeah. Wow. that That is a life history right there. Oh, it just so heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. So a third person, a third black person during this time was William Moore. William Moore was born about 1855 in Selma, Alabama. More slaveholder Tom Waller moved to Mejia, Texas during the war to avoid his slaves being emancipated. Tom Waller owned a herd of sheep, which William was made to be a shepherd. He says that his family of seven was often hungry, that Tom Waller wasn't keen on giving them food. They would often steal from the fields they worked in or catch rabbits, but it was only a small amount of food at a time. At times he was allowed to attend church on Sunday. But the white preacher always told them to obey their master if they wanted to go to heaven. That's kind of scary. Uh, yeah. I mean, just the things that they would be told just in that last story about the emancipation happened, but they were told, oh, whoa, 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 you can't go. Yeah. Yeah. If your children, your kids. your kids aren't old enough. 
And even earlier in the podcast, we discussed how Galveston was Place. Well, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. still doing slavery two years after the emancipation. Which is why a lot of slave owners would run yeah. to Texas because the emancipation hadn't happened there yet. Yeah, and I mean, the enslaved people, they can't read, they can't write. Right. How, they How get would news? they know? How would they know anything unless someone was told them? And mm-hmm. if whoever owns them, yeah. he's not going to tell them. And that so. ended up actually being the Union soldiers. Part of their jobs is to go to each state wow. and tell yeah. people, like, yeah. hey, this is done. You're free. Yeah, you gotta. Anyways, they were allowed to sing in their cabins, but there was no praying allowed. They would often take turns to see if Waller was about, and then all kneel together and pray when the coast was clear. Aww. William said about Tom Waller, I believe he's in hell. <laughs> Seems like that's where he belongs. Yeah. He was a terrible, mean man. He just about had to beat somebody every day to satisfy his craving. I'm sorry. I just keep making so many noises. I need to just stay quiet. But, oh, I just yeah. can't. No, it's you're terrible. good. No, he was awful. You're absolutely right. It's horrible. Yeah. He basically describes Waller as a sadist. Yeah. And just loved to torture them, basically. Uh, Waller would tie him into the ground and then make another enslaved man hold their head into the dirt while he beat their backs with a bullwhip. William was often made to watch and then asked to go get some salt. Waller would then pour salt into the new wounds, literally pouring salt into the wounds. Yeah. Waller beat William's mother's back with the teeth of a handsaw just because he didn't like what she had cooked. Then cook it yourself. (laughs) She wore those scars for the rest of her life. His father was sent to work on a dam they were building in Houston. They were told after some time that he was running supplies on a wagon and a vine caught around his neck, causing him to crash. The wagon rolled on top of him and he died. I mean, that's just the story they told him. Story, which I know that. How would that even happen? I mean, can you even think of a vine in Houston? Oh, a vine. I mean, maybe back in that time where there's not, it's 1855. There's not big old stuff. Maybe still, it seems like the craziest story that it's like. Caught around his neck, which flipped the entire wagon. That's crazy. Yeah. William, like in his interview, didn't totally seem to believe it. Yeah. But that's just what he was told. That's what he'd been been told. Yeah. One day, William heard a loud shout. He came out to see his mother tied to a tree with the back of her dress down, getting whipped. He went crazy on Tom Waller, who lashed out with the whip, knocking him down. William then grabbed a rock, threw it at Waller's head causing him to fall down. Mrs. Waller, who should be cooking his meals. <laughs> Just kidding. Not all wives have to cook. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Waller came out and tended to her husband. While she was occupied, he freed his mother and they ran into the woods. They lived there for several months until his sisters told him it was safe to come back. When they did, Mrs. Waller tricked him and tied him to a bush. When they fought, he knocked her over and she broke her arm. They ran and hid for a while. His brothers, who were the biggest men on the plantation, stole some shotguns from the house and walked up to Tom Waller. Oh, no. They told him there would be no more whippings or they would use his guns to shoot him. After that, it seems that things were better. When emancipation came, they were offered to stay and they refused. That, wow. That's They were offered money. He offered them money to stay and they were like, um, yeah. no. That's, <laughs> there is no way. 
There's not enough money in this world, mister. As if this guy wasn't foolish enough. <laughs> he thought that would work. They left to his mother's previous slaveholder, who told them to stay as long as they needed to. They stayed until they found a small farm where they could share crop. His mother died in that little house. His brother started going to school soon after, but it was burned out by the Ku Klux Klan. <sighs> William did marry, have children, and settle down, where he, where he was a resident of Freedmantown. Yeah. The Freedmantown. Our Freedmantown that we were talking about. Actually, him and Lulu were both lived in Freedmantown until they died. Yeah. I'm so glad you found their story. Stories. But I I really appreciate the two of you sharing your experiences and finding the stories, Taylor, and writing this episode. I think it's really important. And we, of course, wanted to do something for Black History Month. And it's just an important story. And I think that everyone needs to needs to hear it and be reminded of you know what happened in the past and and some of it is still happening today maybe not as extreme as it was happening to them but there is like we talked about earlier there are still some things that happen yeah that are happening in this country that need to change the world's growing people are learning but that's why we got to have these I conversations agree. and that's totally just, you know for a better future and uh, just good to talk about these people of Freedman Town and give them the recognition they deserve. Anybody who's visiting Dallas, yeah, go check it out. Go see a part of uh, some history and see those statues and mm-hmm. be in the field and just feel the, feel the stories and the lives that were lived there. And it's beautiful and it's a good experience for sure. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And we'll be sharing your photos and throughout the week. And I just, I just appreciative. And thanks for having us, of course. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So to end the episode today, Marcus is going to read a poem that is etched in stone in the cemetery. And it actually sits behind the statue of the newly freed couple. The title is Here and is written by a Dallas native, Nia Akimbo. Here, in this solemn place, our dead stir. From ancient chains rattle, dusty memories thin resettle. As stories untold, deeds of gallantry bold are whispered. One with pleas of freedom, fortified, so silent no more. They beckon, offering response. To queries posted centuries ago, here. On this surreal playground, our children spin carefree eyes and dance, an ode to the ancestors disguised as play, and beloved spirits waited passively for the call to stop this game, the call that would distinguish each by name, child or mother, sister to one, aunt of another. They bid time here. It is here. Their ghostly soldier does battle. No more. Those once held prisoner now flourish in death's cool parlor. As night convokes day to suppress in inviting arms ever, the assurance of renewed dawn commands. And we, in homecoming, 
reclaim a noble past in the place weary from hope lost now reborn here we shall harvest all dare leave no stone undone those at once yielding resistant the knowing dreamers so alone each one strengthened by a grave digger's find every one heir to riches that rival solomon's mines as the present tightens itself about our necks disarmed finally now harmless we discover among these embattled warriors friend cousin brother no longer buried but at rest not buried but sweet with peace as life is sown from death here this was stones bones and shadows see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stones bones and shadows also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners